Before I start with this week's episode of the Financial Prime Weekly Podcast, just a quick note of thanks to the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art, Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. Let's crack on with it. Hello and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a bumper week of interesting stories. In fact, a bit of a belter. Lots of different bits and pieces on the sanctions, some anti-money laundering enforcement action, and a couple of high-profile reports on fraud and the exploitation of limited liability partnerships for purposes of economic crime. So, best get cracking. The links to all The main high-profile stories that I relate in today's Financial Crime Weekly are linked in the podcast description. Let's start with sanctions. Lots of good stuff in sanctions this week, mostly saber-rattling from countries making threats against those which are supporting Russia, whether it's indirectly or, in fact, directly offering support. So we'll start in Switzerland, where Gazprom Bank has announced that it will cease its operations in Switzerland after what it described as a strategic review of its operations. The bank's principal operations were in relation to trade and export finance provision. The winding down of its operations, I feel like I've said operations too many times now, the winding down of its operations is being undertaken in full cooperation with the Swiss Financial Market Supervisory Authority. While the wires carrying the story soft-pedal the link to the many international sanctions impacting the operation of Russian financial services providers, there can be little doubt that this strategic decision has everything to do with the prospects of carrying on business when cards are so heavily stacked against the, the operator. To East Asia now, where the US administration has warned Hong Kong against assisting sanctioned individuals since it might serve to undermine Hong Kong's status as an international financial services hub. The threat comes as a mega-yacht. Yes, uh, mega-yacht stories have kind of gone a bit quiet of late, which is a bit of a disappointment. Uh, It's believed that this mega-yacht, which docked in the city's harbour, that is Hong Kong's harbour, this week, has links to Alexei Mordashov, Mordashov has been sanctioned by just about everyone, the US, the UK and EU, and he is a, a well, high-profile ally of Putin, and that status alone could pretty much guarantee his insertion in any individual sanctions list. The concern of the Russian authorities is that Hong Kong will become a safe harbour, literally in this instance, for those sanctioned to squirrel away their assets. There may be more on this over coming weeks and months, in fact, I highly suspect so, especially given the regime in China is quite chummy with Putin and has refused to condemn the invasion of Ukraine. Speaking of Putin's chums, further threats this week have been issued by the European Union to the leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, another Putin ally. He hasn't got many allies, Putin, but he's got a few of them. Belarusia and, of course, or Belarus and, of course, China being his principal allies. With rumours that Belarus is moving troops in order to support a ground invasion of Ukraine in support of Russia, the EU has seen this as an opportunity to remind Belarus that if it aligns to, to Russia in a more overt manner, such as this one by supporting a ground operation, 
then it's likely that they will also face sanctions on a size and scale currently imposed on Russia by the EU. Indeed, I suspect that were Belarus to join a ground invasion, not only the EU but also the US and UK would add Belarus to the range of sanctions they also currently have in place against Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. Now a bit on alleged sanctions busting. In other news out of the US, Bittrex, which is a crypto company, has been fined 29.3 US uh, 29.3 million US dollars for violating US sanctions regimes together with breaches of the Bank Secrecy Act. The company, so the Treasury explains, that's the US Treasury, permitted individuals in Cuba, Iran, Sudan, Syria and Russian-occupied Ukraine, particularly Crimea, to use its services. The link to that story is in the podcast description. Sticking with the US, a British businessman, Graham Bonham Carter, has been arrested on suspicion of conspiring to violate sanctions placed on Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Bonham Carter was arrested in the UK and the US authorities will now seek his extradition. One more US story before this week's sanctions and finally. And that is that the US has issued a wider threat to countries supplying ammunition to Russia. This comes as intelligence was released this week suggesting that the analysis is that Russia is running short of munitions in its war with Ukraine. While this is broadly good news if anyone is looking for a near ending of the Ukraine war, that hope is likely to be significantly undermined if Putin's friends help him with the supply of tanks, bombs and bullets. It's scarcely surprising therefore that countries are offering threats of further sanctions to anybody who might want to supply that sort of thing to um, Putin. And finally this week I thought I'd highlight an interesting blog post which is worth reading on corporate self-sanctions. The post concerns the attitudes of some corporations following the Russian invasion of Ukraine towards the continuation of operations within Russia post-invasion. The blog post outlines a range of factors companies consider before making any such decision. Of course, I now have Should I Stay or Should I Go by the clash in my head, and you may well have it now too. The link to the blog post is in the podcast description. That's it for sanctions this week. An interesting range of stories. More on it next week, I shouldn't wonder. Now to money laundering. We start this week with Switzerland, which is, it appears, falling in line with much of the rest of the world. Well, suddenly, that part of the world which has a significant role in international finance. With the announcement that the Swiss government plans to introduce a central register of beneficial ownership of legal entities. The move is designed to combat money laundering, but it should also help in the broader need to combat financial crime. It will not be a public register, rather a register which is available to the relevant authorities. Which seems to me to place a bit of a question mark over transparency, but broadly speaking, a register of beneficial ownership of legal entities is to be welcomed. In the UK, the Law Society has once again voiced its concern over the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which is currently passing through the UK Parliament. 
Under the bill, which makes changes around the powers of companies' house and the ability of authorities to combat the use of crypto for the purposes of financial crime, also proposes to increase the fine-levying powers of the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. The Law Society has already voiced concerns over this issue, and which we covered in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast two episodes ago. But it seems like, with this further announcement, it's unwilling to let the matter lie. In the research paper on the bill, which was published last week, and of course which I did a special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast on, which was published on Friday of this week, there's no indication of a government willingness to change that part of the bill, giving additional powers to the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. So I feel it will take some fairly aggressive lobbying from the Law Society to see that they can get some curbs on these powers put into an amendment in the bill. The link to the story from the Law Society website is on the podcast description. Sticking with the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the regulator, the conduct regulator, has announced a fine of £1.5 million against Gatehouse Bank PLC for what it describes as significant weakness in its financial crime systems and controls. The notice provides, Between June 2014 and July 2017, Gatehouse failed to conduct sufficient checks on its customers based in countries with a higher risk of money laundering and terrorist financing. Gatehouse also failed to undertake the correct checks when some of the customers were classified as politically exposed persons, or PEPs. In one instance, Gatehouse Bank set up an account for a company based in Kuwait to aggregate customer funds. Gatehouse Bank did not require the company to collect information about customers' source of funds or wealth, which was required under Gatehouse's anti-money laundering policies. As a result, over a two-year period, Gatehouse accepted $62 million US million into the account without properly vetting the funds for financial crime risks. This example illustrates the risks of failing to have proper systems and controls. The link to the press release and the decision notice are in the podcast description. I'll say, and finally on money laundering this week, but actually there's a postscript which came out just before I recorded this session, so I've thrown that in as well. But I'll begin with an and finally, although actually it isn't, with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, which has announced a crackdown on unlawful estate agents. In news released this week, HMRC has named 68 estate agents which have been fined over half a million pounds for failure to comply with anti-money laundering regulations. The press release provides commentary from Nick Sharp, who is HMRC's Deputy Director of Economic Crime. We're determined to create a level playing field for businesses who play by the rules. That means taking action against the minority of businesses who fail to fulfil their legal responsibilities under the money laundering regulations. Money laundering is not a victimless crime. Our regulations are there to protect businesses from those criminals who would prey on their services to wash their dirty money. Serious and organised crime costs the UK billions of pounds every year, and our anti-money laundering supervision is a vital tool in combating that. The link to the press release is in the podcast description. This is one final one. It came, it squeaked in under the deadline that I set myself for the Financial Crime Weekly podcast every week. One 
quick final money laundering story this week, and it's from Ukraine, which has called for Russia to be expelled from the Financial Action Task Force. The Ukrainians suggest that Russia is a threat to the security and integrity of the global financial system. This is an interesting one, because I can't think of a country which has been excluded from the FATF. Do I think this will happen? Not necessarily imminently, but it certainly remains an option should matters remain as they are at present. That being said, will it make a whole host of difference to Russia if it is expelled from the FATF? Probably not. Just a symbolic act. But actually, I think it does send a bit of a message. Another message, just in case they hadn't got all the other messages relating to sanctions, of course. That's it for money laundering this week. Let's turn now to fraud. We'll start with news of some research published by the trade body UK Finance, which has stated that fraud remains a threat to the UK. In its 2022 half-year fraud update, UK Finance suggests that while overall levels of fraud fell by around 13% from the high in the first six months of 2021, there's not necessarily a downward trend in fraud being committed. Indeed, most strikingly, it's considered that fraud is a national security threat to the UK. It's not immediately clear from the report why it should represent such a threat, but it might only be that technological advances by criminals, uh, by criminal enterprises, mean that frauds are becoming more sophisticated and therefore more challenging to detect and prevent. Whatever the position, some of the rather more prosaic elements are not surprising, where the usual frauds still account for significant volumes of money lost. Such frauds, of course, and we've covered them on the Financial Crime Weekly over many, many weeks and months, such frauds include authorised push payment fraud, non-delivery of goods fraud, and romance scams. They still... they're there. They're still there, and they're still preying on victims tugging up their emotional and then their financial heartstrings. There was actually a sharp rise in romance scams. I'm not entirely sure what that means is going on in the background. We've previously uh, reported in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast on the rise of the threat from food and energy fraud, particularly with the cost of living crisis in the United Kingdom, but also experienced around the world. The report does not flag these as an issue. One has to wonder whether this will change in the report on the second half of 2022, which should be out early next year. Link to the report is, of course, in the podcast description. Staying with the UK, the payment systems regulator, the PSR, has confirmed that it plans to require 400 more financial firms to provide confirmation of payee services. This is a story which we trailed in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast a couple of weeks ago, and even then, it has a sense of inevitability about its introduction. Uh, COP, confirmation of payee, is a crucial element in a payment transaction in order to prevent fraud. The press release provides the COP, confirmation of payee service, is designed to prevent accidentally misdirected payments and APP, that's Authorised Push Payment Scams, by checking the name of the account holder with the account number and sort code. There are currently one million payments which benefit from the checking service every day. This latest requirement from the Payment Systems Regulator 
follows a direction the regulator gave in 2019, which saw the UK's six biggest banking groups implement the system. Since then, additional non-directed firms have voluntarily implemented the service, and there are now 59 financial organisations offering COP. The regulator is keen for COP to be widely implemented by financial firms that send and receive payments. The payment systems regulator thinks providing this service to consumers, regardless of who they make a transaction with, should be a priority for all firms, which is why it's giving this direction. This is particularly important as the number of APP scams has continued to rise. The link to the press release is in the podcast description. We end this discussion of fraud with an old favourite, the Corona scam. This week, it was, I'm afraid, another abuse of the COVID-19 bounce-back loan scheme in the United Kingdom, where the Insolvency Service has announced that Abul Kalam, who is a restaurant or was a restaurateur, has been disqualified as a company director for being, quotes, unable to explain over £400,000 of his restaurant's income and expenditure after his business folded, including £35,000 which he claimed through the bounce-back loan scheme during the COVID pandemic. COVID pandemic is still ongoing, by the way. I don't like the suggestion that it's over. The link to the story is in the podcast description. Now, before I turn to the end of this week's episode, when we look at Transparency International's report on the abuse of limited liability partnerships, there was a little bit of news which may be of interest to those of you concerned with law reform. You'll recall that I've dealt in previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with the prospect of more failure to prevent offences in the context of financial crimes. In fact, in I think one of the June editions of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we looked at the Law Commission proposals for reform in this area. Well, in fact, I mentioned the prospect of more failure to prevent offences in the context of a seminar this week, which I had with some LLM students. As I said, you may recall that the Law Commission of England England and Wales is looking into the reform of the law in this area, and this is something which, as I said, we looked at in the Financial Crime Weekly. Well, this week, the former Lord Chancellor, Sir Robert Buckland, KC MP, made some interesting comments during a panel discussion at the American Bar Association's London Conference. It was reported across the news wires that he had said, what isn't in the bill, the bill, of course, being the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill, which I've done a special on and which I've also mentioned in today's standard edition, usual weekly edition of the Financial Crime Weekly. So what isn't in the bill is as interesting as what is. I hope not to prejudice the government's position, but amendments to create an offence of failure to prevent economic crime could be quite a dramatic move by Parliament. While I do think there is a clear direction of travel given the options presented by the Law Commission together with comments previously made by such as Max Hill KC at the Cambridge Symposium last month, I do think that the breadth of what is suggested by Buckland is a little more than policymakers might be willing to go when it comes to committing to a draft bill. 
the law has developed piecemeal in this area at the moment, and piecemeal works well as it allows the limits of the laws to be tested in a relatively narrow context. However, I'm but a humble podcaster, so not convinced that my views count for a whole amount in the grander scheme. It's cliched to say, watch this space, but developments in this area should be genuinely entertaining, and maybe I use the term broadly, should be genuinely entertaining to watch. Now, we end this week with the big news. The big news was, of course, the release of the major report by Transparency International on the abuse of limited liability partnerships for purposes of economic crime. The report is based on analysis of data from Companies House and more than 50 corruption and money laundering cases. By analysis of this data, TI has identified that 10% of limited liability partnerships that have been incorporated, around 21,000 if you want some numbers, uh, have characteristics identical to those used in the Commission of Financial Crimes, particularly bribery, embezzlement of public funds and sanctions evasion. The report identifies that these interconnected networks of LLPs typically have three or more of the following characteristics, and they list roughly around 10, I think. They were incorporated between 2005 and 2015. One or more corporate partners in one of 21 high-risk jurisdictions, 15 of which are either bots, British overseas territories, or members of Commonwealth nations. Now, corporate secrecy in those jurisdictions is something which is frequently treasured by anybody who seeks to commit what might be regarded as questionable activities. These corporations have 10 or fewer partners. Relatively few, if any, are natural persons as partners, so they tend to be corporations as partners, so legal persons rather than natural ones. Partners spanning dozens, sometimes hundreds, of limited liability partnerships. Partners appearing in tandem alongside their pair, usually another secretive offshore corporate partner on the paperwork of 10 or more LLPs. Both the LLPs and their officers registered at one of a relatively small number of addresses, typically alongside hundreds of other identikit LLPs. Where they, have, where they have data on persons with significant control, it's frequently either non-compliant or a natural person based in Russia, Ukraine, a Baltic state, or somewhere else in the former Soviet Union. The striking conclusion from their report is that it is reasonable, a reasonable and conservative estimate to assume the economic damage caused by the abuse of LLPs is in the tens if not hundreds of billions of pounds. This is a figure which reflects the scale of the damage done globally. For its part, the UK government has acknowledged that part of the problem is with Companies House and its lack of powers to check the veracity of the information which it receives. To a degree, and as I considered in this week's special edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, this is something which will be addressed, or could be addressed, depending on the extent of the final shape of the statutory provision could be addressed when the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill becomes law. Clauses 76 and 90 of the bill, as presently drafted, give the Registrar of Companies more powers to share information and reject documents which have inaccuracies within them. 
At the heart of the schemes, of course, lie the many enablers, the corporate enablers, whose identities are known, but against, who, against whom very little action has been taken. And by action, that could be criminal action or relevant civil action. As a consequence, no credible deterrent exists to those tempted to exploit the situation. Once again, the focus shifts to the UK government to create a stronger enforcement culture, which, to give credit where it's due, the government has been looking to do with recent changes to the law and also under the guise of recent reviews of anti-money laundering and other regimes. The report laments the difficulty of the situation with the reforms failing to maintain contact with the scale of the problem. To be frank, this is the case across the financial sector, and I suspect it will be forever the case. We can certainly see historically that practical developments in banking and other aspects of financial services are often way ahead of the common law or statute, which then has to play catch up to attempt some regulatory oversight on the situation. It's an interesting report. I've had a chance to skim most of it. I'm going to give it a proper read over the coming weeks. The link to the report, if you want to read the whole thing, is in the podcast description. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I said it was a belter, and I think it was. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And, all being well, you'll hear from me again next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a cracking week, everyone. <laughs>